Again, it's a pleasure to be with you. Let me remind you what we did last night. The um, should be. It's on green. Is that right? Good. <laughs> last night we based as our thoughts um, from two Timothy the letter to Paul to Timothy um, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the focus of our thoughts from this uh, letter is on grace it's the grace of God in Christ Jesus and we have looked at something of what that grace means and we've gone back to the Old Testament and seen that grace is seen Uh, and mentioned as such in the Old Testament and we looked firstly at Noah the circumstances that accompanied that grace was the whole earth had corrupted God's way on the earth and God said thee only, you only Noah have I seen righteous before me in this generation the tenth generation he said you only have I seen righteous meaning that he understood the approach to God which Abel instituted right at the beginning and Cain rejected and we went back through the history of God's dealings with the first people on earth which have laid a foundation for the rest of his dealings right through the rest of scripture I want to move on from that area that we have been looked at and I think we've got to the end here put the next one up I headed it grace after the flood because again we come to this fact of God's dealings in this world and it's grace after the flood let's bow in prayer before we come to the word of God Father we are privileged to come to your word there is no other word on earth Lord that is eternal unchanging and given for our benefit we thank you you've preserved it for us today we have the word of the living God and by this word we are taught we live and we thank you Lord for your faithfulness you've kept it for us thank you for the Jewish nation that has preserved it for us thank you for the saviour who came from that nation we thank you for your gifts that are so freely bestowed on us we count it a privilege this morning to come to your word break the word of God the bread of life to us from the scriptures may we see Jesus may our eyes be drawn unto him by faith to trust him wholly for all that he has promised to do and will yet accomplish we thank you for this great grace in Christ in Jesus name Amen I want to look at grace after the flood King James uses the word grace NIV uses the word favour and your first section is in Deuteronomy 33 and Deuteronomy 33 oh sorry Exodus 33 Exodus 33 and we're going to read from verse 12 
to verse 17. Exodus 33, verse 12 to verse 17. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favour with me or grace in my sight. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favour or grace with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with us, with me, and with your people, unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? What a statement. The only distinguishing feature Moses' call for was the presence of God in their midst. That would distinguish them from every nation on earth. Every other nation would be distinguished from this nation by the fact the presence of God was with them. And we are called a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And we are to be known before the nations of the world because the presence of God will be with us. So we're seeing a picture of God's dealings in the nation of Israel and I'm just taking it from there and applying it to the church because the principles of God do not change. How will anyone know unless the presence of God is with us? That is what Moses said. The nations must know. We are different. We are not like the nations. We are not like the world. God has called us out of the world. It's a peculiar, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And this is a distinguishing feature, is we are different. Israel would be different from all the other nations of the earth and the distinguishing feature was God's presence would be with them. What amazing lessons we learn of God's grace in the Old Testament. That God in all his holiness, would dwell in the midst of a nation. So when we come to this, what are the circumstances that we find here? They are no different to Noah and the flood. If you take your Bible, turn back to Exodus 32. And we read this, Exodus 32 and verse 7. And God is with Moses on the mountain and in verse 7, Exodus 32, verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. We read before the flood, the whole earth had corrupted God's way on the earth. All the people. Here we have Moses, he's in the presence of God and God says to him, Go down. Your people, you brought them out of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. So we step into the same kind of scene 
which we saw before the flood came. Before us lies the nation of Israel and God says to Moses, they have corrupted themselves. And these are God's words to that people. Verse, uh, we'll read from verse 8. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. Wow. The scene is the same. The circumstances are the same. We have corruption before the eyes of God. And God says to Moses, Leave me alone. I'll destroy these people. And I'll make of you a great nation. Now Moses belonged to the tribe of Levi, not to the tribe of Judah. There are back of all this, the whole plan and purpose of God. And Moses is a figure, a shadow of the one we have in heaven now. It says in Hebrews there, Moses was faithful in all his house for a testimony to what was to be spoken afterwards. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, He is faithful. Moses was just a shadow. Christ is the reality. What an intercessor we have in heaven. Because in this instance, as God says this, we find Moses uttering an amazing words. He says this. Verse 11. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Give us grace. This is what he says. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? (laughs) Moses returned back to the Lord the responsibility. He says, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Talk about ability to intercede before God. There's a shadow in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, of Paul in Romans chapter nine, in his intercession for the nation of Israel. We come here to Moses, and he says, "Your people, you brought them out. If you don't bring them in, the nations will say he wasn't capable." He wasn't able to. He made the promise, but he couldn't fulfill it. What a manner of reasoning with God. We don't pray like that, do we? To do that kind of prayer, we must understand God and His nature. We must understand God and His ways. May God bring us to the place where we can intercede effectually for the day in which we live to know how to pray we do not know how to pray as we ought 
but the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So we come to this amazing scene that's set about here. Verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Why should the Egyptians have the right to say that? Talk about an arguing intercessor arguing as the cause of these people who God says they have corrupted themselves. And he's, he's reasoning with God. He says, Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants. And he goes right through. And there it is that Moses finally cries for this people. He says, if you cannot forgive, blot my name. Blot my name out of the book you've written. What an intercessor. What a man able to reason with a holy God where sin is concerned. I think we learn a lot. And, and Moses pleaded the grace of God. How will I ever know? If I've found grace in your sight, do this. Grace is a great grounds for pleading with God when sin is involved. And here we have a picture before us of an immensity. And we have a man making intercession for God's people so that they will not be destroyed from off the face of the earth. So we have grace in the time after the flood. And I've taken just odd scriptures out because the word grace is not mentioned very often as such in, in exactness in your Old Testament. I'll pass quickly to the one you've got there, Psalm 45. Psalm 45, yeah, verse 2. We'll read verse 1 to know what the psalmist is referring to. Psalm 45 verse 1 My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful already writer. And these are the words. You are the most excellent of men. Now that can refer to only one person. You are the most excellent of men. And your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Now the Bible says your lips have been anointed with grace. And we went back in the New Testament to find that Jesus was full of grace and truth. It is evidence at the beginning of his ministry He'd been tempted by the devil 40 days in the wilderness. 
he returned full of the Holy Spirit and power. And he went to his hometown, Nazareth. He went into the synagogue as his custom was because he's a Jew. He went into the synagogue and they handed him a scroll. The scroll was the book of Isaiah. And as they handed him the scroll, it says he opened the scroll. And there are no chapters, no verses. What he is doing is looking for specific words that is written in the book of Isaiah. And he finds the place where it's written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me. And he goes through his ministry and finishes with to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The Bible says he sat down, he gave the scroll back and he said, this day has this scripture been fulfilled in your ears. And your Bible says they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. You're seeing a fulfillment of Psalm 45. King James, grace is poured into your lips. And they're hearing these words and the comment of the people in the synagogue listening is they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And in the midst of this immense revelation of Christ and his ministry and the grace that would accompany it, he said, There were many lepers in Israel in the days of Elias. None of them was cleansed. None. There were many there. None was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. And there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the the drought was on. But he was sent to a woman of Sidon, a Gentile. And they got angry and they took him and they took him out of the town up onto the brow of a hill to throw him down and kill him. The response to grace and its dealings. The Gentiles are going to be saved. The Gentiles have a place with God. Religion has always fought against grace. That's the picture right through Scripture. If you have problems with God forgiving people like David who have committed murder and adultery, you have problems with grace. But the problems we face so often today is the reverse. Grace is freely available so I can really do what I like and I'll be forgiven. No, you can't. You will face, if you are a child of God, you will face the disciplinary hand of God on your life. These are very serious areas in Scripture. I notice repeatedly, I sit in church when I'm here in Australia. We come to the Lord's table, only one section invariably is read. Even though the Feast of the Lord is covered three times in the book of Corinthians, only one section is, seems to be always mentioned. It's 1 Corinthians 11. 
But in the midst of 1 Corinthians 11, in dealing with the Lord's table, we get the Lord's dealing with his own people. And when you come together, he finally says, this is not for your good. I hear, I hear what is going on. And when he argues his case, he interprets what's happening in that assembly. He said, for this reason, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. You have died, they have died prematurely, they ought not to have died. Because if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Who is God dealing with the world? No, the church. Nothing to do with the world. This is his people, his church. For this reason, many of you are weak and sickly and many sleep. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord so we do not perish with the world. God is a faithful Father. You have had children. Many of you here are married. Some of you are children. And if you're children, you should have been dealt with by your father for certain things you did. (laughs) The rod of correction drives foolishness from the heart of a child. True. Uh, Even though the government may be against it, we don't abuse them, but we correct them, we admonish them, and we teach them why they did wrong and why they deserve what they got. True. So when it comes to the faithfulness of our Father in heaven dealing with his own children, Invariably, he is the pattern. His dealings are just. We cannot do what we want to do when we have a father. And so we find the Bible is clear on his dealings. So when we come to this whole area, the Bible says, grace is poured into his lips. And I've taken you to the incident where it happened. And in the midst of that immense grace, we watch the reaction of those who trust in what they've got from God, their religiosity, their law, their own righteousness, and to find that God would go to the nations which had no light, which were not given a law like they had been given, which didn't have the understanding, they didn't have the prophets, they didn't have the priests, they didn't have what God had given Israel. Why should you go to them? We are acceptable in your sight and they trust in what they have been given. And so they reacted violently, ready to kill him, throw him off the mountain. And your Bible says, he passed through their midst. His time had not yet come. But invariably, the reaction to true grace is a hatred of those who proclaim God's grace because sin we like it has a pleasure to it and we do not want to give it up that is the characteristic of scripture in describing the nature of humankind in relation to a holy God so we go down and I notice this you can't separate grace from glory take your Bible turn to Psalm 84 Uh, The King James uses different words to the NIV and you'll find that 
grace and glory are mentioned there but in, in uh, Psalm 84 verse 11 for the Lord God is a sun and shield the Lord bestows favour and honour or grace and glory from those whose walk is blameless no good thing does he withhold no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless before him he bestows he gives grace and glory when you come to the great exposition of Paul in Romans chapter 8 those he justifies them he also glorifies and nothing between. There is no sanctifying work seen between the words. Those he justifies, them he also glorifies. There is no limitation there. You say, that means I make a decision, I come to Christ, I'm right for eternity. No, I didn't say that. It says those he justifies. Coming to the front and making a prayer does not make you righteous before God. It requires a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart revealing the truths that are in Christ so you respond and you come to Christ out of your darkness, out of your sin and you meet Him. You meet Him on the grounds of grace. You experience forgiveness. You know peace with God. And for the first time in your life, you will pray, Father. God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart and you cry, Father, not my earthly one. I have a heavenly one. Birth has taken place. God has done a work. So much dependence today is based on a prayer and a decision done. That is not God's manner of saying. It can happen that way. I'm not denying that. But what I am saying is when there is a birth, there is a reality in that birth. The Spirit of God makes no mistakes. The world cannot receive Him. It does not know Him. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot know them. They're spiritually discerned. So as a natural man in this world, I know nothing of the real ways of God. I'm ignorant of them. I'm walking in darkness. It is not till God shines into my heart with this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ does light come into my being. And God takes up residence in an earthly vessel. From there He will work. And that work will never cease till the day we see Him face to face. Those He justifies, them He also glorifies. Who can say anything to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can lay any charge to the God's elect. It is God who justifies. That's why your Bible says, Noah found grace. 
If I left it at that, I thought, oh, well, Noah was looking around. He was looking for grace. And he suddenly found... Your Bible doesn't say that. Your Bible says, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord looked and Noah suddenly found himself a recipient of God's grace. I've got a list of hymns. I asked my wife because I just get bits out of hymns. I remember bits of words and I want the whole hymn. All right. But as I thought on these, and I'm going to put them up later on the board, as I thought on these, I thought the marvellous understanding that Wesley and some of these men had of what we are talking about today. The immensity of grasp expressed in those hymns of the saving nature God has exerted in us who believe the gospel. We'll touch on it later. But what I am saying is this, you cannot separate grace from glory. You will never know what it means to be glorified till you have received the grace of God in Christ. They're inseparable again. Last one I've left there dealing with this whole issue of grace is the nation of Israel. Take your Bible, turn to Jeremiah 31. And we're going to read again from verse 1. I would love to spend time in this area. We do not have it. Jeremiah 31, verse 1. At that time, it's looking ahead, it is prophetic, it is future. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of the clans of Israel. You say he wasn't in the past. He's looking through to the future. He was the God of Israel in the past. But God rejected them. God put them aside and chose out of the nations of the world a people for himself. And for 2,000 years they have wandered over the nations of the world and been awful suffering it's just a history of suffering. And the expression of what they would go through was prophetically told to them in, in Deuteronomy 28:29. God told exactly the conditions they would find themselves in. He's telling it before they went into the land the first time. Moses is prophesying. And he describes accurately, it has been fulfilled in detail, Every statement that Moses made, they would go through. They have gone through in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and there's still more to come. But in Deuteronomy 30 he says, I will gather them back into their own land and I will do better to them than I did in former times. You mean under the times of Solomon when this was the greatest nation on the earth, when, when that temple was the eighth wonder of the world, it's never named amongst the seven wonders of the world, the temple was the eighth wonder of the world, there was nothing like it in the whole earth for richness, for design. And when, you remember, the Queen of Sheba came 
the half has not been told me. The peace, the immensity of this kingdom that God had established called Israel under Solomon through David. He says, I will do better unto you than I did in former times. That's prophetic. So there lies ahead for this people gathered back into their own land an immensity of scripture yet unfulfilled. We live in amazing times, don't we? We cannot be ignorant of Scripture. We cannot be ignorant of what God has promised to do. It is true, the majority are back in unbelief. They're secular, they follow New Age, they worship all kinds of things today. But God has not finished them with them as a nation. His plans and purposes will take place. But when we step here, it says this. This is what the Lord says the people who survive the sword will find favour or grace in the desert. I will come to give rest to Israel. And he's coming and he's coming to give rest to Israel. His feet will stand in that day on the Mount of Olives. But before that happens, Jesus said, to the Jews, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, stand where it ought not. And he's speaking of by Daniel the prophet, Daniel, Daniel 9, he says, he that reads and understands, let him flee, run to the desert, the wilderness. Because then, there will be tribulation such as was not, no, nor ever will be. We're heading into it. Except those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. The world has no idea of what is coming upon it. God knows the end from the beginning. Your Bible is a history book from beginning to end. It is all outlined. You deny the beginning, you'll never understand the end because you're worshipping the same God. He did everything exactly as he said in the beginning and he will do exactly everything as he said will take place at the end. We have an amazing book. You need to know what this book has in it. You need to know the God who caused these scriptures to be preserved for you and me. That we might not walk in darkness. That day will not take us unawares. We are not in the darkness. We are in the light. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand the words of God in the midst of the conditions we find ourselves in today. Look up! Your redemption draws near. That is a comforting word. When Paul writes in Thessalonians, he says, encourage one another with these words. He's specific. So we have here an amazing word given to the nation of Israel. The people who survive the sword will find grace in the desert. It's going to take place. I will come, God says, to give rest to Israel. I've done this, uh, and I give you a bit of homework sometime when you go home. Take your Bible, Old Testament, 
and uh, NIV or King James, write in the words, never again. Never again. Particularly in, it would mean no more in, in King James. And you are going to find promise after promise after promise because God is a covenant-making God and God is a covenant-keeping God. And the words never again occur three times in the flood. Never again will the waters cover the earth as I have done. Never again will I destroy the world as I have done. Three times, never again. Why? Because it's a covenant God made with his own lips and made to the people he addressed, which is Noah, his sons and all generations after him. And every time you see a rainbow, God is saying, never again. What happened then will never again happen. I destroyed the world in one action. Geology doesn't teach you. You go, to, you go to university. Geology doesn't teach you that. Your Bible teaches you that. And by the way, when you look at the fossil record, you look at the way the world is laid out, the topography of the world and the sedimentary layers and all that goes with it, you're going to have to agree with your Bible, not with the science. So when you come to these areas, we have an authority beyond any other book used to teach which a man has written down his thoughts this is God's word and it's for the nations of the world. And every time you see a rainbow, you are hearing God say, never again. When you pick up your Bible in your Old Testament, never again will Jerusalem be trodden down by the Gentiles. Never again will an alien tread its streets. It will be safe. Never again, never again, never again go through Joel, Hosea and it's never again, never again, never again. So there's coming a point in history where you see what's going on today. God says, never again. They are comforting words to a covenant of people who have experienced the judgments of God as a nation at the hands of the nations of the world. And God has a promise ahead never again. You know what's happening? Because I have to move amongst the Pacific where Seventh-day Adventists have done a lot of damage, created chaos, torn churches and families apart. It is dreadful what I observe going on both in Solomon's Fiji Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, that's the main areas where I've had to deal with this in public meetings and in Bible colleges. Nebuchadnezzar's vision is where they start and they're correct. Their interpretation as they start is correct. They see these nations because they're unveiled in your Bible. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire and the Roman Empire are history. And because it's a Gentile king who is seeing Gentile domination over the Jews, over Jerusalem, over the temple and over the land of Israel, there is no Jewish suffering scene. Daniel has four visions late in life. This is when he's young. He's, he, he, he interprets this vision. When he's old, he has four visions very clearly paralleling what Nebuchadnezzar saw. But every one of them involves Jewish suffering. The first two, 
His face goes white, ashen white. He is sick. He cannot do his work because it's his people. So the first two visions deal with that. When you start with the third vision, it's your people, Daniel, your holy city and my sanctuary, my temple. And so God defines the history. When will all this take place? Well, you only have to go to the Gentiles' dream that he had, Nebuchadnezzar. When you're reading I don't know what the Bible means to you when you read it. To me, it lives. <laughs> it just lives. It means exactly, I see it as it happens. So I am standing there. What was Nebuchadnezzar? He suddenly saw this statue. He didn't see it develop. He saw this statue stand before him. And he was astonished at this immense image that he saw his, his whole being was occupied. He noted every detail on that image. He took it all in. Then suddenly, a stone cut out without hands, not of human origin, suddenly came down and smashed the image in its feet, ground them to powder. The whole image was ground to powder. A wind came, took the lot away and from that stone a mountain filled the earth. When will it be never again when the stone smashes the image in its feet? Gentile domination of Jerusalem will end and the king will set up his kingdom on earth. We have an exact history given to us in our Bible. We need to know what God has said. It is a comfort to know man is not in control. The leader of Iran who is going to wipe out the nation of Israel is not in control. The Word of God is in control. It will happen exactly as He said, but we need to know what He said if we're going to get comfort in the world we are living in today. If you listen to the media, if you watch your television set, if you watch all that's going on, you are going to be filled with fear. Aren't you? And we begin to wonder, where is God in all this? Well, He's here. Is here. Every word that he has said, he will fulfill. And grace is going to be extended to the nation of Israel. He will pour on them, Zechariah, he will pour on them as a nation the spirit of grace and supplications they're going to lift their hearts and voices to the God of heaven because they will be so desperate in this situation there is no way out. And I've told you the pattern is this. When the earth is corrupt grace appears through Noah. When Israel is corrupt grace appears with the intercession of Moses. When Israel has corrupted his way upon the earth grace appears in the person of Jesus Christ returning to them. They will look on me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his 
firstborn son. Every household apart, weeping, because they will recognise they killed their Messiah. And he was the Lamb of God. And they will understand. They will know their scriptures. It will come as a revelation to them. As a nation, a nation will be born in a day. Talk about the power of God in miraculous workings in the last days. This book is real as much as he is known worldwide as the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. And that feast has continued unbroken for that nation from that point till now till then. He said it will no longer be said the God who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. It will be said, the God who brought them out of the north country, Russia, and from all these other countries, he brought them back. That's what will be said. So God is going to do a work, an immense work, yet to happen on the earth. Our work, where we have Jewish people in contact, is to show them from the scriptures, as Paul did every time he went into a synagogue. He proved from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah of the Old Testament and that he would die as the Lamb of God for the sin of the world. For the Jewish nation, their sin. So we come to an understanding there is grace exhibited in the Old Testament. True? Then we come to the thought, and I've gone very quickly through spanning your Bible, but now I come to the most amazing area. If you will grasp it, it is immense and the truths are very rich. We turn from what we call the Old Testament from Genesis through to Malachi. We switch now and come across to the New Testament. We call it the New Testament. Next one. What I've done in this is to show us the sequence God has left for us in Scripture because these books are in divine order. Alright? So as I've just laid them out in sequence and I've put comments, I'm going to add to the comments that you see on the screen there. Your Bible starts with four books. What are they? The Gospels. What's their names? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Tell me where the word grace appears in those Gospels. Good. Only in the book of John and only at the beginning of John. Only in the book of John and only at the beginning of John. Does the word, it's nowhere else in all the Gospels. Its demonstration can be seen, but the actual word grace as such is not dealt with except with John. The word was made flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Of his fullness have all we received, and if you've got the King James, grace for grace. So in the four Gospels, the only mention of this word grace is there. Then you come to the book of the Acts, and you'll find the word grace is mentioned frequently through the book of Acts. And it was Paul's task to testify 
to the gospel of the grace of God. And he said, I want to finish my course. What I've been given by God, I want to finish to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You pass from there and you come. The book of Acts is how the church functioned in missionary and outreach. It's development. But you come to seven letters. You can group them. There are seven letters. Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians and Thessalonians. Seven letters. And you are going to find, if you take those letters, the word grace is everywhere. In all those letters. It is everywhere. Not only will you find that they are Paul's letters, And every letter Paul wrote was, it began, grace to you. And every letter Paul wrote finished with what? Grace with you. What is he saying? Grace to you is what you receive from God that allows you to stand before God accepted. Justified by grace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in this grace we stand. What about your walk? Grace with you, he says. Grace is God's divine power operating in our weakness. uh, 2 Corinthians 12, which we went through yesterday, last night. So, so, I I just got to know time. I don't hurry any, all right? And we've run to the limit. So what we've got here is an understanding. These seven letters. This man is the apostle to the Gentiles. And every letter he wrote to us in those seven churches, because he's writing to believers, not to the world, he's writing to believers. So we will understand the salvation we have in Christ, this grace of God in Christ. Be strong, he says. Remember, he's finished now. This is to Timothy his last pastoral epistle before he leaves this world. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I think there's a strong word for us today in that wording. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God bless you. Thanks very much.